the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red blood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from See You at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the See You at the Game website and your host for the See You at the Game podcast. In a moment, we will discuss the Buffs' 20-17 victory over the Washington Huskies. The path to CU's third straight Pac-12 win at home, well, was an odd one, as the Buffs won a game while posting less than 200 yards of total offense for the first time since 2004. How did they do it? Well, Four turnovers, including two which were turned into 10 points, certainly helped. After reviewing the Buffs' win on Senior Day at home, we will discuss the 2021 season finale, a road game against number 16, Utah. The Utes are the Pac-12 South Division champions, claiming the title with a resounding 38-7 victory over Oregon. Las Vegas doesn't give CU much of a chance, listing the Buffs as 24-point underdogs. We'll take a look at the respective rosters and relevant stats and see if we can forecast a path to a buff win to close out the 2021 season. A program note. We will be back next Tuesday with our recap of the Utah game and a special year-end look at the CU season. We'll discuss the highs and the lows and give out some of our own awards for the year. After next week, the podcast will be coming to you every other week or so with the next episode slated for December 16th, when we will recap CU Signing Day. So yes, we are just three weeks away from introducing the CU Recruiting Class of 2022. Thereafter, we'll be back every few weeks to discuss roster and coaching moves, the coaching carousel which dominates the news this time of year, and take the occasional peek into how Tad Boyle's baby buffs are doing in their 2021-2022 campaign. That's all the more reason to subscribe to the podcast where you download your favorites so that you won't miss any CU news this offseason. But before we get to the offseason, we have one more game to play. ESPN's Power Index gives CU only a 6.5% chance of defeating Utah. Then again, the same Power Index only gave the Buffs about a 33% chance of beating either Oregon State or Washington, and the Buffs won both games. Can the Buffs pull off another upset? Let's find out. Okay. Well, we are absent one player to this evening. Uh, Brad apparently had a birthday week celebration to end all birthday week celebrations. So it's going to be Neil Langland and I. Neil, how are, how are things in Larimer Square this evening? Yeah, it's quiet down here. I, I think people are getting ready for Thanksgiving. 
and they're out and about doing their shopping and just not doing any of it downtown here. I'm looking forward to seeing what's on your mind tonight. Okay, well, let's get to it. The theme I had, or at least the essay that I wrote for the game, was entitled Write Your Good Times in Stone. The idea being that take good things when they happen, enjoy them while you can. And we'll talk, of course, in detail about the Utah game coming up, but the 20 to 17 victory over Washington in the home finale may very well be Colorado's last victory for at least nine months. So let's just talk big picture. How much did you enjoy Colorado defeating Washington for the second straight time after losing the first seven games that they played against the Huskies as members of the Pac-12? I had an email exchange with your law school roommate over this very topic. And I said in that email that that kind of a win at that point in time on that day was a lot more satisfying for me than if we'd gone out and put 50 up on them and, and beat them by 40. Just the, the back and forth, the emotional toughness that CU showed, the opportunism, very satisfying to see that. That was much more enjoyable for me. Okay. Well, it started off enjoyably with the field goal drive to start the game, but then Colorado, the next seven possessions, had a grand total of one first down, which was not so enjoyable for the 41,000 in attendance. But somehow Washington's poor offense and missed opportunities kept CU in the game. What was your reaction when Washington on its first drive was driving for a touchdown to make it 7-3, and Jack Lamb became the the hero of the day with an 88-yard fumble return for a touchdown? You know, some days you can't do anything right, and that was Washington on several occasions. And some days you can't do something wrong, and that was the Buffs. Apparently they didn't turn the ball over. They had a fumble, but they were able to recover it. And they had that scoop and score just put right in their hands. So I thought at that point, well, maybe this is the formula for a win, is we just stand by and wait that for them to make mistakes. And, yeah, it uh, certainly felt like it was CU's day at that point, that it was a 10 nothing game. Just looking at the stat sheet between the two teams, three and outs, that CU went out three straight times, went three and out, then Washington was out, went three and out twice before they got the touchdown to make it a 10-10 game right before halftime. What was your feeling at halftime that at a 10-10 game, Colorado was ahead of UCLA the weekend before, 20 to 10 at halftime, and ended up losing 44 to 20? With the ineptness of Colorado's offense in the first half after the first drive, were you afraid that this was going to be a not CU's day, but it was going to be a repeat performance of what we saw against UCLA? Intellectually, logically, I thought, yeah, that UW was going to come out, make some good adjustments at halftime, and their offense would just continue to roll. And conversely, that CU would probably not be able to out-adjust UW, and it was going to be at least a steady erosion, a steady progress by UW that was going to win the game. On the other hand, I thought CU gave a better account of themselves at the end of the first half. 
didn't go into the locker room on a negative note as they had the previous week and that they still had a chance. I just had a feeling completely irrational that they were still in the game and they were probably going to stick with them at least through the third quarter. And turns out we were much luckier than that. Yeah. Getting the three more turnovers in the second half. The final numbers were pretty gruesome. 426 yards to 183 for Colorado. Washington actually had more yards on third down than Colorado had total yards for the game that they kept converting not only third down, but third and long throughout the game. So of those statistics, which was more frustrating for you, the fact that Colorado had an anemic offense, 183 yards, or that the defense was continuously giving up third and long conversions to the Huskies? Well, we had a Jekyll and Hyde defense on first and second down. We were stoning UW. On third down, it's like we couldn't see their receivers again, just like last week with UCLA. Our safeties were dropping 25, 30 yards and leaving the middle wide open. After all those conversions, I was just thinking, what can we do to shut that down? We were playing soft zone, it seemed, much of the time, and we weren't getting much of a pass rush. And I thought, we've got to do something about this. That was entirely the most frustrating part. Uh, I didn't expect CU's offense, to answer your question, to be as bad as it was, but it bothered me more that we could not get off the field on third down. Yeah, well, it was third down was definitely not CU's friend. That's something Carl Durrell talked about at his press conference on Monday, that that's something they're working on. I don't know if how much working on you can do it after 11 games, but the inability to get off the field on their third downs and the ability inability to stay on the field on our third downs was something that obviously stood out in the game. So let's talk about some positives to take from the game. No turnovers. I don't know if you saw that stat that this was the sixth time this year in 11 games that Colorado was turnover free. And the record for Colorado in games without a turnovers was four coming into the season. And CU's already had six games without turnovers. Part of that, of course, is due to the fact that quarterback Brandon Lewis only has three interceptions. So do you attribute Colorado's record for lack of turnovers to a quarterback that likes to throw the ball into the third row when he scrambles, or is this a team that had, you know that might be able to build on this, that uh, build a reputation of not turning the ball over? Well, I did a little stat work uh, this weekend also. I went to the NCAA site, and for turnovers, CU is in the top five or ten in the country for right. fewest turnovers. And I think to answer your question, that is something that you can build on. If Brendan Lewis has a solid foundation of not taking unnecessary or undue or inchoate risks, that is something he can definitely build on. And if he can get some protection and bring that sort of good judgment forward, he definitely has a leg up to be the starter next year. And hopefully that will allow him to prove to improve in the offseason. So I think it's definitely a positive thing. 
that we have that we have. And I thought I thought the on a, a similar vein, Stuart, that our penalty total for the last game was much lower as well. And that helped us because UW had some very key penalties that allowed CU to go on scoring drives. We avoided that this week. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the two scoring drives we were talking a little bit off the air before we started that there was a face mask penalty on the first drive of the game that put the ball into Washington territory, led to a field goal, and then a roughing the passer penalty on the touchdown drive in the fourth quarter that might well have come to a very abrupt end because it was a third down, would have been a fourth and one even after the completion, and that became a moot point after the 15-yard roughing the passer penalties that kept the drive alive, gave CU some momentum after only having four first downs in the first drive, then one first down for the next seven drives, and then four first downs in the final drive. So one other positive that really stood out to me that Washington came into the game as the only FBS team in the country after 10 games that was perfect in the red zone. They were 31 for 31 in scoring, and they were two for four in scoring in the red zone against Colorado. So maybe a little bit of luck, maybe a little bit of our turn to have some good fortune, but maybe some decent defense as well. Well, let's take that fumble on the three-yard line. Initially, it looked like just total mess on Washington's part, but it seemed to me that CU was putting pressure on that side of the line and it caused the center perhaps to snap it poorly or to try to get off of his out of his position very quickly. And some of that can be attributed to CU's defense, I think. It was our turn for some good fortune. But you know, I thought that the well, I'll stop there. <laughs> okay. Well, one player that stood out to me, I guess we'll ask you, is there any individual play or individual players that stood out to you in the Washington game? Who gets the game ball for in your in your opinion? Great question. I was kind of thinking about that myself. I had been following Lamb, the Notre Dame transfer at linebacker, all season and kind of waiting for him to, to bust out. Also, number 20, also a transfer from Oklahoma, Robert. Robert Barnes, yeah. Robert Barnes, excuse me, yeah. They both had terrific games, and especially stepping in for Landman and all of their other comrades that had been hurt, I thought they were stupendous. So as a duo, I would give it to them. Okay, well, yeah, the the two higher-quality transfers that we, like you say, we've been waiting. And again, Carl Durrell kind of alluded to that during his press conference, saying that playing in the shadow of Nate Landman, you don't get as many reps, you're not on the field as often. And with Nate Landman being hurt, it certainly gave them an opportunity in three of the four turnovers. Of course, Lamb's touchdown return, and then Robert Barnes had an interception and a fumble recovery. So let's hope that this carries over into next year. One player I wanted to give a shout-out to was uh, Carson Wells, another defensive player. Of course, when you're only giving up 17 points and winning the game, with the defense generating 10 of those 20 points for Colorado and could have, could have, would have, should have been 14 points with a turnover 
giving the offense a first and goal at the seven yard line should have been a touchdown instead of a field goal, but gave us 10 points, could have been easily 14. Carson Wells' stat line seven tackles, three tackles for loss, two quarterback hurries, two third down stops. One fourth down stop, which includes the the game winner with less than two minutes to play on the fourth and five that gave Colorado the ball back and allowed the bus to run out the clock. Two passes broken up and again, uh, and a forced fumble. I'm going to tell you, I don't know, do you, Brad usually has two screens available to him. Are you able to... uh, look at a screen and talk at the same time. Do we walk and chew gum? I want to direct you to something if you have the opportunity. No, let's do it. I've got my screen up. Where are we going? Okay. So I want people to look at, there's a picture that was attached to the game notes for the game that is going to be on Carson Wells's wall someday. If you're listening and you're out driving or out for a jog, you can do this when you get back home. But if you're listening to this from the see you at the game website, just go to cubuffs.com, go to the Colorado main website. And when you get to the cubuffs.com website, there are lots of listings across the top and just click on sports. Are you with me so far? I am there. Okay, sports. So you drop down to Colorado football. Okay. And then there's some opportunities there, schedule, roster, news. Hit schedule. So go to buffs, go to football, schedule. And if you drop down to the Washington game, of course, that's going to be near the bottom because we're almost at the end of this regular season. If you drop down to the bottom, there at the Washington game on the far right, there's going to be some options, final game book, quotes, things like that, stats. You see the the different options there. Yes. Click on notes. So these are the game notes that Dave Platty is famous for putting together at the end of the game. And if you go down to the bottom, it's just one page of notes. But at the bottom, there's a, a very small picture that's like one inch by one inch. But the picture, and I'm hoping a lot of Buffs fan will take a look at this. This is pictures taken after the game. Carson Wells, after doing his work with the media in the locker room, went back out into the stadium and all the lights were on. So it was like it was set up for a night game. The stands were empty and Carson Wells being a a junior, but playing his last game. He's a fourth year junior. He's not going to come back next year. Took the time to go out and he just sat there, leaned up against the, the goalpost and just looked out at the empty stadium. You see that picture? I do. What a great shot. Yeah. And like you say, I, I don't have the technology to figure out how to get that onto the See You at the Game website. But anybody that's listening to the podcast, you go to seeubus.com, football, schedule, drop down to the Washington game, click on notes. You'll be able to find that picture. So, I mean, that is one of those buffs for life kind of guys that, you know, Carson Wells, and I liked his quote about the Nate Landman being able to come out in the last couple of plays of the game as the safety on the the kneel downs that he was actually crying for his roommate. that he actually got to go out and play the last couple of games of his final home game. So hats off to, to Carson Wells and congratulations for a good game against Washington. 
he had, first of all, he had a phenomenal game. Other teams had been doubling him and had been concentrating on keeping him away from the quarterback, away from the ball. Washington seemed to play him straight up, and that was a big mistake. On that fourth and five where he blocked the ball, there was no one assigned to him, so he had a straight shot at the quarterback. He right. had a terrific game. He was everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and this shot of him that you found, what a great shot. And that speaks a lot to me about his character as not just an athlete, but as a human who was able to appreciate one of the most significant days of his life. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes for us to, when we're frustrated at the efforts of the 18 to 22 year olds out on the field to forget that there's individuals underneath those helmets and, you know, that these are young men that are doing their best and sometimes their efforts fall short, but you always know my policy on the website on the comments section is you can certainly say that a player dropped a pass. You can say that a player missed a block, but I will delete any comment that says they're not trying. And I think this is a testament to exactly what you're talking about with uh, these buffs and, and, you know, college athletes in general, that you should never be in a position of questioning their, their efforts, that they're always trying to do their best and they're trying to to win for their school and their teammates. Well, it's well said, Stuart. And I think what this also shows is that the athletes on the field and the people in the stands, ex-athletes and so on, recognize a big transition day in their life and are able to appreciate what they've done in the past and the friendships they've made and the hard times and the good times. And then just to go out and savor it for a few moments. This is storybook stuff here, really. Yeah. I I hope that the Sioux Athletic Department finds a way to make that a a picture that they put on the bigger screen or bigger place to make it easier to find so people can see it. But it's not the last game. We do have another game, even though it's on the road. It was the last home game, the finale with CU finishing with three straight Pac-12 home wins. But now the Buffs take on the onerous task of taking on the Pac-12 South champions, the Utah Utes, who mauled, I, you might come up with a better description for that, but mauled seems to be appropriate, 38-7 to win over previous number three, Oregon. Did you have a chance to uh, take a look at what the Utes did to the Ducks last Saturday? I saw mm, a good chunk of the third quarter, and it was at that time I thought, well, if Oregon has anything near what they're reputed to have, this is their time. And Utah did not let them back into the game. Utah still totally dominated in all phases of the game, uh, including coaching. Um, It was just an amazing show of football expertise. I think Utah right now is going to be a formidable opponent for anyone, anywhere. Right. Well, both ESPN and Vegas tend to uh, agree with that assessment at this point, that Colorado Open is a 24-point underdog. Even Arizona, 
with all of its one win, and that was against the COVID-riddled Cal team by an ugly score of 10 to 3, is only a 21-point underdog on the road against Arizona State. So Vegas thinks less of our chances, Colorado's chances against Utah, than Arizona has one win in its last two seasons has against Arizona State. The ESPN Power Index gives Colorado a grand total of 6.5% chance of winning this game with 93.5% chance of Utah winning the game. So they're still going to play the game. So let's talk a little bit about Utah. It's really kind of hard to find any weaknesses on the offense. They're the 18th rushing offense in the country, averaging over 213 yards a game. And they're 20th in scoring, average, averaging 35.9 points per game. CU has one game this year, and that was a double overtime game to get to 37 against Oregon State. Utah is averaging more than every game CU has played in regulation so far this year, even the 35 we had against Northern Colorado. So the offense seems pretty impressive. What do you make of Cam Rising and crew in the, the Utah offense? I think the trademark of Utah football under its current coach is to have powerful lines on both sides and then to have skill players that match that style of power football. And they've done it masterfully. Uh, I think their offense can run the ball, did it at will on Oregon. The only hesitation I have is that Utah early in the season did not seem to exhibit that. So I'm wondering, you know, if there still might be some sort of vulnerability or some sort of frailty in their offense that no one has discovered yet. I think the chances of that are pretty small. I think their offense is just going to be more than CU's defense can handle right now because we're matched outmatched up front. Yeah. And unfortunately, some of those early games that was Charlie Brewer, the four-year starter at Baylor at quarterback before Cam Rising came on the scene and took over. And then they've been on a seven-game winning streak. And like you say, just dominating everybody in the second half of the season. Rising has almost 2,000 yards passing, 14 touchdowns, and only two interceptions. I mean, Brandon Lewis is not super far off. Um, he obviously has played a couple more games and has thrown a lot fewer passes. 1,456 yards passing with 10 touchdowns and only three interceptions. He actually set the record. Again, this is another Dave Platty moment um, that you find in the game notes if you Find your way through the the maze of the CU website. You can find these in the game notes. Has 108 straight passes without an interception, which breaks the freshman record set by Craig Oaks of 104 passes back in 2000. So Brandon Lewis is already in the record books for the longest stretch by a freshman quarterback without an interception. But Cameron Risen certainly is having a better season. They have a running back. Thomas that has 836 yards rushing. I'm actually kind of glad that we know Utah's going to be playing in the Pac-12 championship game because I was otherwise I'd be afraid that they try and get him 164 yards rushing 
just to get him to a thousand yards in the regular season. And they might be able to toy with Colorado just enough to actually do that. But he's had 160, 177, and 94 yards in his last three games. So, like you say, playing behind a strong offensive line, they've been dominant. The, and their leading receiver is a tight end, which Colorado has struggled with. Uh, good tight end play. Remember what Dulcich from UCLA did to Colorado in the second half? Well, even part of the first half, the UCLA game a couple of weeks ago. Like you say, not a whole lot of weaknesses in the in the uh, Utah offense. Well, the the tight end for Washington, I think, caught several passes that converted third downs. Mm-hmm. So the problem with tight ends for CU continued. I think, if memory serves, correct me. Utah has, I think, two very good tight ends as receivers. So that's going to be a lot to handle. I I just don't know how we're going to be able to do that. Yeah. No, it was kind of what we hoped Colorado would be at the beginning of the season. You know, a power rushing game, had four of our offensive line starters back, had the returning Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year and Jarek Broussard. Had a bevy of wide receivers that were not maybe exceptional, but very good. And then we had Brady Russell and some, you know, eight scholarship tight ends. So that was going to be the blueprint for Colorado this year. Was it, you know, you have to have a great quarterback play. You have to have a good manager that would hand the ball off to a great running back behind a great line. And then when you got to third and fourth, throw a six-yard pass to the tight end. Hasn't worked out that way for Colorado. Before we go to the defense, just one name that I just cannot believe is still in the roster, Britton Covey, who actually had over 500 yards rushing for Utah, wait for it, in 2015. Okay, so those of you that are doing math at home, that was a long time ago. This many, right? I'm holding up six fingers. Yeah, how many fingers is that? You run out of fingers on one hand that Britton Covey has been playing for Utah. Now, he took a two-year Mormon sabbatical, and then, of course, with COVID and red shirts, he's still running around. He had pretty much the game-breaker against Oregon. You know, Utah scored in the final minute to make it a 21-to-nothing game. Then Oregon quickly gave the ball back. And on the last play of the first half, Britton Covey ran it back over 70 yards for a touchdown. All of a sudden, the 14 to nothing game was a 20 to nothing game, and pretty much it was over. So I was watching, I guess it must have been after the Oregon State game, we were watching Utah play, and Britton Covey had a run on a reverse or a pass, and I commented it must be his 17th year of eligibility, and right after that, the <laughs> commentator said, yes, you know, the old man. And was, I turned to Brad and said, yeah, I, I, I could do this. You know, I could be a color <laughs> commentator in the next life or something like that. So Utah, what stands out to me again, you know, a, a very good rushing offense and averaging almost 36 points a game. It's hard to see Colorado finding a way to keep them from not hitting their average. On defense, Utah is – is very good only because they're not great at any one thing. Like last week, 
Washington had the number one pass defense in the country, but that was because they had 120th rushing defense in the country. Mm-hmm. Every significant defensive stat that I looked at for Utah from rushing defense, passing defense, total defense, scoring defense, everything was between 30th and 40th in the country. So really kind of no weaknesses, I think, is the what you could say most about the, the Utah defense. Well, the, if we think about two mathematical concepts, one being maximization, the other being optimization, is it is better to have a well-rounded defense that's pretty good in all areas than it is to have, say, the top pass defense and the worst rush defense or the worst sack statistics. Utah is well-rounded. They do everything pretty well, and they're not weak in any particular area. And I think that's that's a function of their coaching style, and they recruit to that. And similar to their O-line, their D-line is monstrous. It's very good. Yeah. Well, are there any rays of hope that you see? I mean, John Embry, his first season with a terrible one-win team, went to Utah on the road and and won. Of course, maybe it was a two-win team, ended up being, what, three and nine instead of being two and ten and upset Utah on the road. And then, of course, won one game the following season was gone. But there's always a chance. Are there any avenues that you can see other than blinding snowstorm or a breakout of COVID or something like that in the Utah locker room that's going to keep Colorado competitive in this game? I have a scenario. I have no idea how likely it is, pretty unlikely, which is that Oregon, after a big emotional win, clinching the Pac-12 South and looking forward to the next week in the championship game facing Oregon again, a highly motivated Oregon, will probably be saving some ammunition, saving some energy, physical and emotional. For that game. And it may be, this is the trap game theory, obviously, right. that yeah. Utah may have a letdown. The other I have is sort of in response to that question is a literary response similar to your essay. And I'd like to save that and not jump ahead to the prediction, to oh, the prediction okay. part, if very, I may. Very good. No, that's, that's perfectly fair. Yeah, I think that the intangibles if you're right, you know, talking about, and oddly enough, I mean, we don't know for certain it's going to be Oregon. There is still the opportunity for Washington State and Oregon State to win the Pac-12 North. Oregon, if they beat Oregon State in what was formerly known as the Civil War, wins the Pac-12 North. That's already done. If they lose, however, And Oregon State, of course, then would win the game. If Washington State beats Washington in the Apple Cup, then Washington State goes. If Washington beats Washington State for the eighth straight time in the Apple Cup, then Oregon State would become the Pac-12 North champion. But we're going to go for the moment, assuming that Oregon's going to win. And Utah, again, yeah, playing Oregon, beating them up, then having to play them again. 
they have nothing to play for. They're not going to the college football playoff. They are up to 16th in the polls, but they're not going anywhere in terms of the college football playoff. They're going to the championship game and their first chance to win a Pac-12 title the following week. So, yeah, it's pretty easy to look at that and say, yeah, let's just win this game, get past it. Maybe that keeps it close long enough for Colorado to do something crazy at the end. But, again, it's a 24-point spread. And just because I'm I'm a weird stats guy, I went back and looked at CU's last three losses, and that would be DeKal, Oregon, and UCLA. And the average score of those three games, if you add them all up, was 41 to 17, which is a 24-point spread. So maybe uh, Vegas is just looking at CU's road record here of late and saying this is what we're going to be looking at against Utah. So let's talk a little bit about predictions. And again, prediction-wise, I put mine on the tips that are posted on the CU at the Game website first thing Wednesday morning. So without Brad here this week, you're going to get to be the, the sole arbiter of what's going to happen and go with it. I did uh, a little literary with my essay, George Bernard Shaw quote. So let me have it. What's your uh, literary <laughs> comparison for your prediction for this game? Well, that is a lot of pressure for a rookie doing this on his own for the first time. But I will try to do as I hope the Buffs do and step up. In terms of the score, I think once Utah gets out into a lead, maybe sometime early third quarter, middle third quarter, they're just going to back off a little bit. But I still think it will be something like 40 to 18, 40 to 15. And CU will probably get some garbage time scores perhaps, but I just don't see them being able to move the ball. And this is coming from someone who made Pollyannish Homer predictions the last few weeks. I just don't see how it's possible. Now, on the other hand, the one avenue I see for uh, the Buffs is for Carl Durrell on Friday about noon to take something from Shakespeare's Henry V, Act 4, Scene 3, which is... Henry V's speech on St. Crispin's Day, the great battle. This speech has been quoted many times in many movies. And if he can be an inspirational leader, the Buffs can keep it close. But even with that, I don't see them able to win. Okay. Well, it is what it is. We're going to live through it one way or the other, and then we're going to talk about it next week and maybe do some best of to wrap up the regular season since Colorado is not going to be eligible for a bowl game. So we'll wrap up the Utah game, do a postmortem on that, and then talk a little bit about the 2021 season in retrospect and talk about our best plays, worst plays, best moments, worst moments type of thing. Uh, but we will be back next week. So any other words of wisdom other than Shakespeare to, uh, to leave us with? Um, <laughs> before CU's 12th and final game of the 2021 season? 
Well, the only wisdom that I can impart is plagiarized, but I have one feeling that perhaps could motivate the buffs, which is we came into the conference at the same time. CU at that point had all the advantages in terms of history, power five status, um, finances, all of that. Yet it, it appears that Utah is going to beat us to the Rose Bowl this year. Um, Quite possibly, yeah. And that's going to be a motivator for Utah. I think at some point CU has to look in the mirror and then look at themselves and say they did it from starting further back in the pack than we did. We can do that too. So let's just get on with it. Otherwise, I hope you're having a nice turkey hangover on Friday afternoon and just enjoy the little things the Buffs might be able to do. Very good. We'll leave it at that. Maybe our Christmas present will be if Utah actually makes it to the Rose Bowl, that Kyle Weddingham will say, okay, that's as far as I need to take it and retire. And that might be a, a nice Christmas <laughs> present for the Buff Nation and the rest of the Pac-12 if Kyle Whittingham hangs up his whistle after the, you know, the, the end of the 21 season. So thank you, sir. We will talk again next week. It's been a pleasure. And Brad, I, I hope you recover from that week of birthday celebration. Thanks for listening. A little bonus for making it this far into the podcast. A little tip as to a couple things that are coming up on the See You at the Game website this week. Two new headings are going to be added. One will be Coaching Carousel, with an emphasis on the Pac-12. There are already three coaches that need to be replaced in the Pac-12, but if Justin Wilcox goes to Washington, there will be another opening. What if Mario Cristobal defects for the SEC or the ACC? What if Kyle Winningham gets to the Rose Bowl and decides that enough is enough and decides to retire? Or if Stanford decides that David Shaw's $9 million contract is too much to pay for losing seasons? There'll be plenty of news in the coaching carousel, and we're going to have a heading that will be devoted just to news on that front. The other new banner will be the transfer portal. Now, Colorado had 12 players go out for senior day, but several of those were walk-ons. So there was less than 10 actual seniors leaving the program that we know about, but the C recruiting class is 17 strong, which means there's going to have to be attrition of another 8 to 10 players from the current roster. That's another 10% of the roster just to make room for any new transfers coming into the program. So the transfer portal is going to be big news for the CU program the entire offseason, and you're going to want to be around to see how that turns out. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Until then, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.